This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor, the rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody knows. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Sunday, August the 22nd, 2010. We've got a scary one for you tonight on a number of uh, affronts. In uh, just a few moments, we'll speak with a maverick economist about, well, his dire prediction that we are heading into another deep, deep recession and we'll find out from Howard Ruff how this coming economic cataclysm is actually related to the BP oil disaster I think you can probably connect the dots Uh, in the second hour wow what can I tell you about the Bishop Sean Manchester he is an Anglican Bishop he's also A vampire slayer. There, I said it. Vampires? Come on, Sarrett. Has this show jumped the shark? No. No. Uh, I want you to hang in there. Listen. Suspend your disbelief and hear the man out. He is a man of the cloth. And I think you'll find him quite sincere. Credible. He claims to have battled what essentially are reanimated corpses engineered by demons. And when you follow the logic, if I can use that word, it makes a certain amount of sense. Again, he's a bishop. He's a man of the cloth. And he would say that if you believe in God, then you have to believe in angels, the angelic realm. And of course, part of the angelic realm 
is uh, fallen angels. And fallen angels, and of course there are demons as part of that uh, angelic realm, or spiritual realm, if you will. And demons, of course, are capable of uh, all sorts of uh, trickery and uh, evil. So, if you can believe in God and angels and demons, then why couldn't you believe in the possibility of the existence of vampires? I'll take you back to the late 60s, where there was, in fact, a well-known, documented in the newspapers at least, incident. Uh, whether it was an actual vampire, whether it was some media-fueled hysteria, you'll have to decide, but it was uh, known as the Highgate Vampire episode. Highgate Cemetery. And uh, Bishop Manchester was uh, front and center in that investigation and claimed to have disposed of, if you will, the offending vampiric entity. That's coming up in the second hour. And I've, I've talked to Bishop Manchester before many years ago. As I say, I, I find him to be a sincere and credible. Yet, I'd be lying if I, uh, if I told you that I didn't find the idea of vampires roaming the earth to be a little far-fetched. However, after, you, after I spoke with him, um, probably eight years ago, I was, I, I left the studio rather disturbed, and I made a very hasty retreat to my car, and I'll probably do the same tonight. And Dan Ellison, I would uh, encourage you to do the same. Don't dawdle. Walk with purpose. And um, do you have a crucifix? Do you wear a crucifix? Maybe tonight would be a good time. to. I've got mine right here. And I am not, uh, I'm not uh, being flippant either. All right. Spoken as a good uh, Greek Orthodox boy. As I said, Howard Ruff uh, coming up in just a few moments with another scary tale. I want to share a couple of interesting stories with you. Interesting uh, report by a professor in the UK, Donald Light, who says, drugs don't work. This a top professor claims five in six New medicines have little, a little benefit to patients. Five and six have little benefit to patients. Drug companies have been accused of conning the public by hyping up patented medicines with little new to offer while downplaying their potentially harmful, harmful side effects. A new study estimates that 85% of new drugs offer few of any benefits while having the potential to cause serious harm due to toxicity or misuse. The author of the research delivered a damning attack on Big Pharma at a meeting of sociology experts in the U.S. I'm sorry, I believe I said he was in the U.K. In the U.S., Professor Donald Light described the pharmaceutical industry as a market for lemons, one in which the seller knows much more than the buyer about the product and takes advantage of this fact. Sometimes drug companies hide or downplay information about serious side effects of new drugs and overstate the drug's benefits, says Professor Light a professor of comparative health policy at the University of Medicine and Dentistry in New Jersey. Then they spend two to three times more on marketing than on research to persuade doctors to prescribe these new drugs. 
Doctors may get misleading information and then misinform patients about the risks of a new drug. It's really a two-tier market for lemons. He alleged that the pharmaceutical industry owned companies in charge of drug testing and provided firewalls of legal protection, behind which information about dangers of lack or lack of effectiveness could be hidden. I mentioned Howard Ruff coming up on the program. Well, another sort of doom and gloom prophet, Gerald Salente, is, is saying, we're headed for the greatest depression ever. Boy, the news just gets better and better, doesn't it? He's calling it a fake recover, uh, a fake recovery. The fake recovery was nice while it lasted, says famous apocalyptic forecaster Gerald Salente. Now, he's the founder of the Trends Research Institute. He's a, a pretty celebrated, well-known uh, futurist. But now the fun's over, he says, and we're headed for what, well, he's describing as the greatest depression. Specifically, the always startling Salente says the country's headed for rising unemployment, poverty, and violent class warfare as the government efforts to keep the economy going begin to fail. The crux of the problem, Salente argues, is that the middle class has been wiped out. America used to be a land of opportunity for all where hardworking people uh, used, uh, could build their own small businesses in their own communities and live prosperous and fulfilling lives. But now, a collusion of state and corporate interests that Salenti describes as fascism have conspired to help only the biggest companies and the richest Americans. And this has put a shocking amount of the country's wealth in the hands of a privileged few and left the rest of the country to subsist on chicken feed wages and low job satisfaction as Walmart associates or worse. The answer, Salente says, is to bring back the laws that prevented huge companies from getting so big and powerful and put some opportunity back in the hands of ordinary people. But doing that is going to take a while, and in the meantime, we're headed for trouble. Well, we'll get Howard Ruff to weigh in on that as well. Financial advisor and writer of the investing newsletter, The Rough Times. He's saying another economic meltdown headed our way, and this one may be fueled by the BP oil spill disaster. More of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Stay with us. The truth will set you free, but first, it'll really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. AM 740. And the website, richardserrett.com. Richard, and last name is spelled S as in Simon, Y-R-E-T-T, richardserrett.com. That's your portal uh, to The Conspiracy Show here on AM 740. All your information on upcoming shows. There's a past show audio archive, a, a regular contributor page, a book and DVD club, and uh, you can also contact me through the website. There's also a top-secret document page. I think you'll find some of those documents quite interesting. Uh, Bishop Sean Manchester uh, coming up at midnight, and we'll reach him in Dorset in the south of England, uh, where it will be 5 a.m. In, uh, in the morning in uh, the U.K. And uh, he'll talk to us about the infamous Highgate Cemetery vampire episode, which, again, was written about in the newspapers uh, over in England in the late 60s. All right, uh, some more scary news. 
The, uh, the BP oil uh, spill, my next guest says, is going to have huge ramifications on the U.S. economy and uh, a priori uh, the Canadian economy, I would uh, suspect, as um, w- what, what the problem is. It's not just the oil spill. Uh, it's what they're using to clean up the oil spill. These dispersants, which are being uh, uh, basically sprayed from airplanes flying over the Gulf, it's Corexit, I think it's uh, Corexit 9257, and the EPA considers this stuff. This is going to be like the new Agent Orange. Uh, and uh, Dr. Patricia Doyle, who was with us a couple of weeks ago, was describing, I, I believe they used Corexit or something similar uh, during the uh, the cleanup of the Exxon, Exxon Valdez. And you know the average age of the... Uh, the cleanup workers from that disaster, 51. They're dropping like flies. And this core exit uh, mixes with the air molecules. It gets blown inland, and it's raining down. It's toxic rain. And this stuff can cause, according to some researchers, ma- organ failure, uh, damage to, uh, to, to your heart, your liver, your lungs, uh, reproductive systems. It, it's gonna. It could cause uh, birth defects, and it's it's killing the weeds when it rains down in places as far away as Iowa. So my guest says, once this starts to soak into the farmlands and the residential areas in the eastern United States, for example, parts of the east may eventually become practically uninhabitable. Imagine, uninhabitable. It's like, you know, Al-Qaeda dropping a dirty bomb in, uh, in, in, in uh, New York City. And this is going to cripple the U.S. economy, he says. And this economic ripple is going to hit investors soon. Howard J. Ruff is a financial advisor and writer of investing uh, the investing newsletter The Rough Times. He's the author of Famine and Survival in America, How to Prosper During the Coming Bad Years, Survive and Win in the Inflationary 80s, Making Money, and uh, his latest book is How to Prosper in the Age of Obamanomics. Howard J. Ruff, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Well, thank you. You're, uh, you're uh, sort of described as a, uh, a self-styled curmudgeon. <laughs> And an economic maverick. What exactly makes you a curmudgeon these days, uh, Howard? I don't even think I'm a curmudgeon. A curmudgeon is uh, not what I am. I'm just a sweet guy. Just a, <laughs> I'm just a, a grandfather and a, and a husband. And a, and it's just that uh, people who don't like what I have to say will look at it and think I'm a curmudgeon. But that's, that goes with the territory. Uh, let's, th- let's talk about the BP oil uh, disaster. And uh, I described the uh, the dispersant, this core exit. Uh, I mean, how bad is it now? I mean, are we be are we able to? Are you getting any information uh, on on the, the the effects that it's having now? Uh, you know, whether the farmlands or the residential areas in the east. I mean, is it raining down on the eastern seaboard as we speak? Not yet. Uh, when the hurricanes hit uh, the Gulf, the core exit is. Uh has actually broken down the oil. In fact, when they went out and looked for oil, they're going to scoop it up after a seeds of bad weather. They couldn't find it, but it's hiding way down deep. It's, uh, it's, there's a big plume of the oil 
underneath and only a small percentage part of it's gone. Of course, the optimists all yelled that oh, the government, the uh, the economy is cleaning it up. Nope, still there. And when the uh, hurricanes, but when it goes ashore, it's going to be uh, on the beaches down south. And then when the hurricanes hit, the hurricane path uh, takes it uh, to the north. And so the eastern half of the United States and large parts of the Midwest are going to be uh, going to have the toxic rain, the combination of the oil and the core exit. And I think the uh, the de- the uh, impact of that is going to be absolutely devastating. And I think the uh, I have a daughter living in Philadelphia, and I've just told her that if if you get any toxic rain coming up from the south, get the first plane out to Utah where we live. And and if you can't get on a plane, get in the car and start driving, because I think that the the whole uh, industrial and uh, and financial and uh, uh, half of the United States, third of the United States, if they're is going to be devastated. A third of the United and States. They're going to have serious, serious effects on the economy. And gold and silver happen to be uh, uh, actually good news bears. The good news for them is bearish. And consequently, I think that the uh, as the eastern third of the United States is severely damaged, gold and silver are going to be bought worldwide. You've been promoting uh, a, a gold as a, as a safe harbor for decades. Uh, we're around what twelve over twelve hundred dollars an ounce now. Uh, well, uh, I'm not uh, asking my subscribers to buy gold. I'm asking them to buy silver. 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 Now. You, can, you can get a roll of silver dime for ninety dollars. One ounce of gold, you have to pay twelve hundred dollars for it. And silver is really the monetary metal. And the uh, so the forces are already working on the metals are the inflation that's brewing, inflation being a monetary term, which describes uh, the not rising prices, but the increases in the value, and the uh, decrease in the value of the currency by its dilution. And this administration, I never thought in my lifetime I'd ever hear an administration talk about trillions of dollars, but they're doing that. And there's like Will Rogers said, invest in inflation, it's the only thing that's going up. And when... Uh, when the uh, uh, gold and silver are rising, inflation is is rampant, and that's the place to have a good part of your money. You got to be a maverick. You can't do what Wall Street tells you because it isn't going to work anymore. Even if this uh, uh, BP oil, um, uh, I hate to call it a spill. That's not a spill. It's an absolute disaster. But even if that hadn't happened, uh, would we still be looking at? Uh, you know, another recession, depression, because of the other factors, whether the, the huge uh, debt and unfunded liabilities? Well, now you're taking me beyond my pay grade here. <laughs> I tell uh, you. The, the answer to that is probably yes. But I don't think anybody knows what the real answer to that is, except as, the, as America moves rapidly into uh, socialism, which it's doing, with socialism being defined as government controlling or owning large portions of the production in the economy, of which they're doing. Now they've got control of the automobile industry, they've got control of banking, they've control of Wall Street. Now they've taken one-sixth of the American economy, which is health care. And all of these things are very bad for the stock market, very good for inflation, very good uh, for gold and silver. Now I'm an optimist, a real optimist. Now it doesn't sound like it, but I am. 
because I think that there's never any set of circumstances that aren't good for you where you can't find ways to make money. And it's at major turning points like this that the most money is made. The most money is made when uh, when when times are tough, but uh, certain people that you know that 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 have gold and silver and 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 platinum and uh, and so forth might uh, might make out all right. Uh, their powder is going to be dry, but if they're going to uh, you know flourish because the uh, the economy hits the skids. I mean, what about the 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 vast majority that aren't that aren't going to have those uh, those metals in their portfolios. Well, what's going to keep them from doing it? Well, I mean, that's a good question, I suppose. But, you know, there are a lot of people that don't have, uh, as you point out, I mean, or Gerald Salenti has pointed out, you know, the middle class is being wiped off the map, and, and a lot of people just don't have any money to put aside. Well, most people have a little bit of money. They can cut back on this, cut back on that, and they can find places to put money. Heck, they're spending money on going to movies and going out to restaurants and so forth, mm-hmm. I suggest that they cl- they clamp down on their spending and, and and start investing in these precious metals. And getting out of debt so that you have funds to work with is a very important part of the roughonomics philosophy. My my feelings, so, so ask me, you're asking me, what will I do if people don't listen to my advice and don't do the right thing? Well, they're going to get hurt. They'll get hurt, but there's no need for them to get hurt because they... Well, the things I'm suggesting are really simple. If you're a subscriber of the Rough Times, you'd know the firms that I recommend, some good firms that I've done business with for many years. And you can and you can buy a roll of silver dime for $90. It doesn't take a whole lot of money to do that. True. I guess what I'm asking, Howard, is, is will America survive this coming economic cataclysm? Oh, oh, yes, America will survive, but in what shape, in what condition? And, the, uh, and so we really have... Uh, Obama is a, is an ideologue. That's very clear. He's not going to be forced to the middle. He doesn't want to be. He's a, he's an ideologue, and Congress is full of ideologues that will rubber stamp what he wants to do. But I think the country will survive in some shape. But will it be the same country we learned to love and appreciate in the same shape? No, it won't be. It's going to be a very difficult time. In fact, I've been viewing with alarm now with, for about 34 years. I have never, ever been as literally scared for the future of my children. We have a big family. We have 14 children, including five adopted. We have 76 grandchildren. I worry a lot about those. Some of them have bought my advice and some of them haven't. But it's going to be a very difficult environment in which to make money. Howard, uh, stay put. Back with uh, more of The Conspiracy Show as we discuss the next coming deep, deep recession. Can we use the D word? We'll find out from Howard Ruff. On the other side, don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Uh, this week's online poll question at richardserrett.com, are we heading into another deep recession? And thus far, the results are 87.5% of you are saying yes. 87.5% saying yes, we're heading into another deep depression. 125 saying no. Howard J. Ruff, my guest. And the newsletter is Ruff Times, R-U-F-F Times. The website, roughtimes.com, will tell you how to uh, subscribe uh, shortly. 
Howard, do you use the D word? Uh, is this uh, going to be another uh, deep recession, or, or are we looking at no, it's de- not be another depression? recession. It's going to be more of the same one. We've never got out of the last one. Is it going to be a depression? Not necessarily. I, I think that's certainly possible. I hope not. For the sake of my children and grandchildren, I hope not. And because, I mean, we'd all like life to be more pleasant and be a happy time. But I'm worried about the possibility of a depression. And uh, they, the real definition of uh, recession is when you're out of work, when your neighbor's out of work, or depression is when you're out of work. Well, and so I think a real depression is a certain, certainly a good possibility. They used to call you the prophet of doom, and I know that at one point you were telling people that they should have a year's supply of food uh, in in store. Do you still do you still recommend that? Yeah, but not because I was a prophet of doom. That was a that was a dumb call for people to call me that. I remember when uh, I had a company that went bankrupt. I went to work rich, and I came home broke one day, which ruined my whole day. I guess uh, we, had, <laughs> uh, we had stored food there. And so we went out, and my wife and I stood with our arms around each other in tears as we looked at the food that we had stashed away. Now, there wasn't a generalized depression, but there was a real depression and, and financial problems at 27 Arroyo Drive in Moraga, California. And so we lived off what we had. So it, the, the storage of food is not just for generalized problems. It's when you have individual problems. And we're going through a period when there's a lot of people out of work. And I've talked to some friends of mine who are practicing Mormons, and the Mormons do this as a, a matter of kind of a cultural thing. And uh, the ones that had stored food, that were out of debt, they managed, they managed to get through this pretty well in, in the meantime. Consequently, uh, I still recommend this. I feel good about it. And, uh, but not because, uh, I mean, uh, the media kind of thought they looked at these Hardcore survivalists who were building retreats in the mountains and probably surrounded by a moat with alligators. They were going to shoot the starving hordes who were probably black who were coming after them. And they thought I was one of those. Well, I'm not. I think they're crazy. I just want people to be secure in their own homes. And part of security is having commodities. And that's just food. I mean, let's see. uh, What else would you want? Look at all the things you buy on a regular basis at the store. And I mean, diapers, soap, sure, whatever. I, I think it'd be a good thing when you go to the store to buy some. You, you buy a case and you sock it away. How high do you think uh, gold is, is, uh, is going to go? How high do I think it's going to go? You're above my pay grade again. All right. Well, uh, take your, uh, your best educated uh, guess. Well, let me give you some numbers to think about. When gold peaked the last big gold market back in the, uh, the 70s and early 80s, it peaked out at $850 an ounce. That was gold. And silver, about $50. Well, now, uh, they uh, uh, Reagan was elected, and Reagan and Volcker quit printing money. They quit they cut the government spending. And so that peaked at that time because the political environment changed. There's no sign now that the political environment is going to change because uh, the, um, the present administration here is, in, uh, is deliberately creating money so that they can buy up big chunks of the economy. And consequently, until it, it, the political environment changes, that's going to change. So I'm not forecasting a peak. 
I'm I'm not in this for short term. I'm not in this to buy and sell. I'm in this to protect myself for as long as things remain the way they are. Well, eight hundred dollars by nineteen eighty standards, if you adjust for inflation, what would that be in today? Uh, about to twenty three hundred. About twenty three hundred. Okay. So we're a long ways from that. Now, if in your portfolio, for example, let's say you have mutual funds that in that uh, part of your mutual funds, it's not actual you know gold coins, but it's it's paper gold, if you will, uh, you know stocks in gold mining companies. Is that also is that a wise play as well, or are you recommending strictly to hold on to 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 gold? Well, there are two things to do. Number one, uh, you, you're, I want you to have about thirty percent of your portfolio in actually gold or silver coins. That's your insurance program, not necessarily to make money, but you will make money at. But that's not what it's for. That's your insurance program. You're insuring against the, the collapsing value of the dollar. But then I, I want another thirty percent in the derivatives of that, the mining stocks, the gold mining stocks, silver mining stocks, uranium mining stocks, and a lot of them are Canadian stocks. And so that's where you make money, big money. And I've been recommending this uh, in the rough times with published published an investment menu since the first of last year, and uh, we're up, uh, if you had a representative example of those investors, you'd be up almost at 80% as of now since the first of last year. So it's working, and that's the places to make money. Now that leaves you about 40% of your portfolio, and then I think you can just go do some typical stock picking. But the things to stay away from, for example, I think you're going to lose money if you buy bonds, which a lot of conservative investment advisors think you ought to do because when you have inflation going like it's going to go, uh, interest rates rise. When interest rise, when interest rates go up, bond prices go down. Consequently, I think that's a very bad idea. Uh, socialism is very bad for uh, for the, for equities for the stock market. Consequently, I don't want to own any gold stocks, uh, any uh, growth stocks. I don't. Want, I want you in the, the the maverick investments like gold mining shares. Are we heading into a hyperinflationary period? I mean, is this going to be like Argentina was back in the 80s? Who knows? I, you keep going above my pay grade now. <laughs> well, you know, I read your CV, Howard. I was impressed. So, well, <laughs> I think the... Um, are we going to have a hyperinflation? I think the odds are we will have, but I'm not about to forecast it because... It's unprecedented, and, and incidentally, I, I'm i not as smart as me. you may think I am. And the older I get, the dumber I get. <laughs> well, you know, I, you, you harken back to the days of, you know, the Weimar Republic in Germany uh, when, when people were carrying around wheel or pushing around wheelbarrows full of money to buy a loaf of bread. I mean, is it possible we could be heading into a situation like that again? Yes, it is possible. I'm not forecasting or saying it's for sure. But it is a distinct possibility, and you need to protect yourself against that possibility by ensuring the value of your holdings. Now, for example, let's take uh, currency. Currency is supposed to be a means of exchange and a store of value, right? Right. So the dollar, the Canadian or American dollar, is is uh, a means of exchange. We know store of value is the place where it would grow. I don't think so. So I'm recommending things where I think it will grow the precious metals or metal derivative investments. And and I'm not always bullish on this stuff. I've been bullish on these metals for, oh, since uh, for 34 years I've been publishing, I've been bullish on the metals for about 11 of those years. Other times I was into more traditional investments. 
But now I'm kind of throwing in my lot with these things and uh, staking my reputation on it, such as it is. And so there, uh, are we going to have a hyperinflation? Very good possibility, but I don't know for sure. It's almost like we have this uh, uh, perfect storm. I mean, obviously the, the runaway spending has been going on uh, for a long time. I mean, even under Reagan, uh, you know, the defense spending and so forth. It, it just, uh, it's just, you know, government almost operating like a criminal enterprise as far as I'm concerned. I mean, that's not just in the United States. That's everywhere. Um, but these other things that are going on, the, you know, the, the, these, these environmental cataclysmic events, uh, it's, you know, with the BP oil thing, I, I mean, I, I'm not asking you to be a conspiracy theorist, but you sit back and you look at what's happening, and it's almost like it's by design in terms of trying to destroy the economy. Well, do you want me to, now, do you want me to sound like a real conspiracy theorist? Sure. Well, there's a... This was in the European press and in the European media and all over Russia constantly reported that that's what actually caused that spill in the Gulf, in the Gulf of Mexico. Apparently, a North Korean ship went to uh, Havana and then headed north. And it had on board, attached to it, a midget submarine. These submarines had about 120 miles range. They were, they, uh, and this uh, oil rig that was blown up was manufactured in South Korea, their enemies. And the, uh, the the stuff that was running around through the press at the time, I don't know whether it's true or not, was that they launched torpedoes at that uh, at that oil rig, and that's what caused the blowout. And then they finally committed suicide by, by blowing up the, uh, the submarine near that, and that that was really what caused it. And shortly after that happened, shortly after the oil rig blew out, Obama sent... A teams of SWAT teams down to somewhere. Why did he send SWAT teams for crying out loud? He should have been sending uh, teams of engineers to see what he was doing. So I think personally that he's just out of his depth. But when, when we elect politicians in Canada or the United States, they always promise what they're going to do. We're going to do this, we're going to do that. And they go way beyond what their ability is. And now... Obama, I think, is in the grip of somebody he doesn't know how to handle, as nobody does. Nobody knows exactly what to do. And so there's a, a conspiracy theorist say that, hey, this was caused by the North Koreans. There's a good conspiracy theory for, theory for you. Indeed, indeed. Uh, what about the idea, though, that, the, that there is a deliberate... The, the, the collapse of the middle class has been engineered... Is there any merit to that argument? Darn if I know. You keep going above my pay grade. Don't do that. <laughs> okay, Howard. Uh, why don't we take a call or two? Are you good for that? Sure. Uh, let's welcome a good friend of the program, uh, Nelson Thal, weighing in here on uh, AM 740. Hello, Nelson. Hello, Richard. How are you? It's well, thank show. you. Thank you, my friend. Yeah, I, I followed uh, Mr. Ruff for quite a while. Very impressed with his stuff. Uh, let me try and get a question in that's at his pay grade level. Um, Howard, do you can you tell us whether or not you see a, a scenario whereby um, the euro takes over as the haven for flight currency, the world reserve ratio takes over as the reserve currency um, from the U.S. dollar? Well, my personal opinion is that all currencies, including the euro, are going to be in serious trouble. We're 
We're worried about the dollar right now, but all currencies are going to be in trouble. All paper currencies have a live, average lifestyle of about 75 years, and this one is 70 years old right now. The, the euro and the dollar are now approaching that li- end of the lifestyle. The world's littered with dead paper currencies. I personally think that eventually uh-huh. the stuff we're going through is going to destroy all paper currencies. And remember that inflation, the economists will tell you, is a diminution of the value of paper currencies by creating more of it, diluting its value. And I think the euro is going to be stuck with that, too, because they've got economic problems that are perhaps even deeper than ours. So in order to keep the world economic financial system going, what will the global government use for for, for transactions and for a store of of, of value. What, 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 what are you? What's your? What are you saying? Are you saying they're going to go to elect all electronic? <laughs> now you're above my pay grade again. What'd you do that for? <laughs> uh, now the, the here, you know, as far as telling the uh, uh, the nations of the world what to do, heck, I don't know. They wouldn't listen to me anyway. So my job is to help the middle class, American, Canadian, and even worldwide middle class know what to do with their resources so they can get through this however long it lasts. And so they're my constituency. They're the people who listen to me. They're the people that I advise. So the, uh, what, how the, uh, the uh, governments will try to get the, their way out of this, whether they'll adopt a new reserve currency, darned if I know, that's, again, beyond my pay grade. All right, Nelson, thanks for the call. Howard, you stay put. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show on the other side. My name is Richard Serrett. Be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Bishop Sean Manchester coming up in about uh, 15 minutes or so. Central uh, figure in the Highgate Cemetery vampire investigation in the late 1960s. Yes, I said vampire. All right. Uh, Howard Ruff is uh, with us. How do they uh, subscribe to the newsletter, the investing newsletter, Rough Times, the Rough Times, uh, Howard? Well, I'm not going to teach you how to do that, but I'll teach you how to rip me off if you want. All right. How do we rip you off, Howard? Okay, go to my website, uh, Howard, at uh, com. And there you'll find out you can sign up for my newsletter. It costs you $215 a year. You get a, an eight-page newsletter every three weeks. Keeps you up with, keeps you current, and a, an update every week. And then you also get a free book, a free copy of the book, How to Prosper in the Age of Obamanomics. And then if you get a couple of issues and you're not happy, you can ask me for your money back, and I'll give it back to you. And you can keep the book. How's that for a deal? That's how you, ro- you, uh, you rip off... Uh, Howard Ruff. Uh, let me get back to the price of gold, because every once in a while, you know, we hear reports of another huge gold discovery. Uh, last year, I think January 2009, there was one near Fairbanks, Alaska. A couple of years before that, there was one in, in, uh, in Colombia. Now we're hearing about, you know, huge mineral wealth being discovered, uh, including gold, in Afghanistan. Uh, if they start, if they continue to find more gold... 
isn't that going to uh, bring the price of gold down? Well, if we accept the theory that they'll find a lot of gold and be able to get it out of the ground at a reasonable cost. But the gold is getting harder and harder to find, and it's deeper and deeper into the ground. Heck, I went down a gold mine in South Africa. I was 10,000 feet underground. And so the, uh, but the amount of, amount of gold that they're finding is being snapped up by, by uh, central banks. For example, uh, the Chinese are the biggest buyers of gold right now, the biggest producers, and they're buying it like crazy. And they've also, as they've told their banks, to buy and told the people to go to the bank and buy some gold. Now, my personal opinion is you'll make a lot more money in silver than you will in gold because it's cheaper. And the average person can afford it more readily than they can afford to pay 1200 ounces, $1,200 for an ounce, an ounce of gold. So my feeling is that we keep very good track of the production figures, and they just aren't that great, really. So what's the best way to buy silver, then? Well... Uh, I think the best way to buy it is in the form of silver coins. Right now, now the U.S. government's selling uh, silver coins, silver eagles, and they're 90% gold. 90% silver. To do it also is to buy what we call junk silver, which is uh, coins minted before 1965, uh, uh, which have, are circulated. They're not no scarcity value, just the bullion value. But that's a good way to start by buying a half bag or. And like that's five hundred dollars face value, or a or a full bag, which is a thousand dollars, and that I think should be the basis for the your building portfolio as part of your in your insurance program. Consequently, the, uh, the the main thing to do is not get ripped off. Gold has a, and the and the sharpies understand that it has a great emotional appeal, and so there's always kind of frauds going on, uh, and uh, all kinds of deals offered. Well, don't accept those. I have some recommended firms. I've done business over the years, and I know that they don't have these unsound practices. But you'll find them in the appendix of my book, and you'll find that in the rough times when you subscribe to it, so you'll know where to go. And 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 then and I str- I'm stressing when you buy the metal, buy the metal co- metal bullion coins, pick them up, and take them home with you. And don't let the gold, for gold the firms uh, store it for you because you don't know whether they're really storing it for you. You really don't know. Store it at home. Rarity is one firm I recommend, which is in Minneapolis. If you buy gold, they'll have gold bars and they'll be handled at Brinks. And Brinks will also will have the serial numbers on these bars. You can go look at them or even pick them up and take them home with you if you want. So that's the safest uh, place for it. Also, the Swiss have a have program when you buy the Swiss uh, franc, you can have it in almost any uh, uh, currency or denomination you want. You could you could buy uh, gold, and it could be transferred to Switzerland, stored there. Now, if memory serves, I mean, there were there were times in uh, history when I think in the United States when they didn't allow citizens to own gold, uh, they would confiscate it. Uh, I mean, is that is that possible and is that the motivation for storing your precious metals at home rather than let's say a safety deposit box in a bank yes and no now the reason that when you if you're storing in the deposit box the government if they ever wanted to seize the gold which i don't think they will because they're in the process of actually selling gold coins they're buying and manufacturing and selling it to you and they're trying to convince you that 
Gold's just another commodity. Consequently, I don't think that's likely, but it is possible. But there's been no time in history when they've ever uh, seized silver. And so if you're concerned about that, buy silver or buy what we call semi-numismatic coins, where part of the value is based on the numismatic value or scarcity value of the coins, because government does not have the authority to seize that. But my personal opinion is to get it, have it, get a vault that you installed at home and take it home with you. And I think the uh, uh, the problem with uh, storing the metals is, or with having the metals, is to have your basic insurance stored at your home. Howard Ruff, my guest, and uh, the newsletter at the Ruff Times. You can subscribe at the uh, at rufftimes.com, R-U-F-F times.com. Back to the phones, and Fred is in Whitby, Ontario. Fred, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hi, how are you doing? I was just wondering, uh, does he think the financial collapse was engineered so people can make big money, some people? You mean the, cli- the, the climate, uh, the climate uh, uh, problem? The way it's going, like yeah. it's going to collapse, right? And it's collapsing. The bubble's bursting. Well, if you just do what I've just been talking about for the last half hour, and, and convert as much of your wealth into gold and silver coins, if the economy collapses, you'll do just fine. So, in other words, it doesn't matter if it's engineered. There's a way to profit from it. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm an optimist. I think that the, the old Broadway musical song that said, look for the silver lining as truth. There's always a silver lining. In this case, is real silver. All right, Fred and Whitby, uh, thank you for that. Uh, Howard, hold on. One time out. We'll come back and uh, a few questions remain. Another economic meltdown staring us in the face. Quite likely says Howard Ruff, but uh, he has some some tips on how you can prepare, and uh, gold and especially silver play a large part in that. Back with more. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. About seven and a half minutes Away from my conversation with the Bishop, Sean Manchester, who will join us from Dorset in the south of England and talk about the Highgate Vampire episode in uh, that country's history back in the late 60s into the uh, the mid-70s. Right now, Howard J. Ruff is with us, and uh, you can subscribe to his newsletter, The Rough Times, www.roughtimes.com. Uh, what are your uh, sort of your rules or your... Um, I guess your rules of business, uh, Howard. I mean, what do you tell people? My rules of what? Business. What are my rules? Yes. Well, first, even with my recommended firms, always compare prices. The price of gold is set every minute, and you can go on a website again, Kitco, K-I-T-C-O, and find out what it is at any given moment. So always compare prices because it depends on whether they're selling gold out of their own inventory, whether it's cheaper. Uh, even with my recommended firms, I recommend you do that. So that's the first thing. The second thing is never buy it leverage. In other words, there are a lot of these guys that figure, well, we can make a lot more money if when you come in, you have a thousand dollars to buy silver. Uh, if you uh, buy ten times as much, just by putting ten percent down, and that kind of leverage is going to kill you. Because I've had instances in my future when I was leveraged. And when gold went the wrong way temporarily, which it tends to do, I got wiped out. 
got my my wallet handed to me. Consequently, never leverage. Stay away from the futures market. The guys that are playing the futures market are a lot smarter than you, and I don't think you you should uh, try to compete with them because they know what they're doing before. Uh, <laughs> before you tie your shoes on, they're also they're out running. Consequently, I don't think that's a good idea. So there's a whole lot of very practical things. And when you get my book, you'll find a list of things to do that will protect yourself. And 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 if you do these conservative things, you're pretty much invulnerable to the uh, the kind of stuff that the fraud artists will be bringing to you because there will be fraud artists approaching you if you buy any. And uh, once again, the uh, the new book is How to Prosper in the Age of Obamanomics. Uh, Howard, uh, delight speaking with you tonight, and thank you so much for your time. That's all right. Hey, I'll talk to you anytime. You, you sound pretty smart. Uh, well, we're probably getting above my pay scale now, so <laughs> <laughs> we'll quit while we're ahead. Howard, great uh, talking to you. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Howard J. Ruff. Uh, not so, so much of a curmudgeon, although his, his press material describes him as such. Just He's a grandfather. What did he say? 76 grandchildren? My word. Okay, uh, as I say, Bishop uh, Manchester is uh, standing by in Dorset, England, and this is not a joke, uh, ladies and gentlemen. He uh, claims to be a... Well, he wouldn't say he's a vampire slayer, uh, but he has slayed vampires, uh, and he'll, uh, he'll tell us all about how that happened and, and why the existence of vampires is a very real possibility, and we should consider it, not just dismiss it, as some mere Hollywood uh, fantasy, keeping in mind that the vampires have been part of a folklore for thousands of years, long before Bram, uh, Bram Stoker's uh, Dracula. I mean, he was relying heavily upon these uh, uh, folk legends. And there are parts of Eastern Europe, for example, they still believe very much in the existence of vampires. Um, in uh, in remote parts of uh, uh, Romania, for example, there is a Transylvania. That's a, a region in, in Romania. And uh, there, the belief in vampires is still very strong. Uh, A quick heads up before we uh, launch into that uh, discussion. Next week on the program, the hidden language of reverse speech. I'm going to talk to one of the specialists in the field of the study of reverse speech. This is where, uh, this is, uh, uh, Wayne Nicholson will be with us. And this is uh, sort of a a covert form of communication that we, we do naturally without even realizing it. In other words, while I'm speaking forward, my reverse speech is actually sort of relating what my subconscious mind is really thinking. So what reverse speech specialists do is they take the forward speech and then they play it backwards. And then they're able to actually isolate uh, clips. Um, And when you hear that backward speech, it's almost like the old back masking on, uh, on you know, the Led Zeppelin albums where you think you can hear, like, satanic messages. Uh, but th- this is becoming... I mean, some dis- dismiss it as pseudoscience, but wait till you hear some of these uh, clips he'll, he'll, he'll play from politicians and so forth. And you hear, for example, uh, President Obama or the, uh, the head of uh, British Petroleum speaking in, in, you know, in regular front speech, and then when you hear them play that same clip backwards, it's quite alarming you know, what, you, what you'll hear. The other interesting thing about this is that, the, that babies actually learn to speak backwards. 
uh, before they speak French words. I know that sounds absolutely bizarre, but if you take a baby, sort of, you know, goo goo gaga and the, sort of the the, uh, the the gibberish, if you play that backwards, you'll actually hear quite clearly them saying, you know, I want a glass of milk. Maybe that's not the best example. It may not be that obvious, but that's the idea of, of what reverse speech can reveal. It's absolutely fascinating. And Wayne Nicholson will be on the program uh, next week. All right, The Vampire Slayer, coming up next. Don't you dare go away. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You ate like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off. Brainwashed in our childhood. Brainwashed by the school. Brainwashed by our teachers. And brainwashed by all the rules. Brainwashed by our leaders. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Hold on to your hats, hide under the bed if you need to. One of the most interesting interludes in vampire history concerns events uh, that took place at a cemetery in the Highgate section of London during the years 1967 to 1983. The modern story of vampires at Highgate uh, began with reports of a phantom-like entity seen in the cemetery in the evenings. Rumors of a ghost circulated. Occultists and head of the Vampire Research Society, Sean Manchester, received the account of a schoolgirl, Elizabeth uh, Wojdelia, and her friend who claimed to have uh, seen some graves open and the dead rise from them. Elizabeth also reported having nightmares in which something evil tried to come into her bedroom, and over several years, Manchester collected similar accounts of unusual sightings associated with the cemetery. In 1969, Elizabeth's nightmares returned, except now the malevolent figure actually came into her room. She developed the symptoms of pernicious anemia, and on her neck were two small wounds suggestive of a classic vampire's bite. The bishop, Sean Manchester, was born near Sherwood Forest, Nottinghamshire, England. He's an author, researcher, bishop, doctor of pastoral ministry, and he prepared for holy orders, having entered the minor of order of exorcist in 1973, which led to his entry into the, the uh, diaconate and priesthood in 1990. And he was episcopally consecrated on the 4th of October, 91. A bishop alone may authorize solemn exorcisms. And as Bishop Manchester explains on the, uh, on the James Wales show back in 2002, adding that the demand has put immense pressure on those who carry out exorcisms. On the line from the United Kingdom, Dorset in the south of England, to be exact, is Bishop Sean Manchester. Hello, Bishop. Good evening. Good evening to you. Uh, shall I... A very misty uh, south coast, I should say uncharacteristically for this time of year. Is that right? It seems to be rolling in as the clouds hang very low in the sky. Well... Uh, appropriate for your program, I would have thought. 
Indeed, I was just going to say that, appropriate indeed. First of all, how should I address you? Should I address you as Bishop Manchester or Sean? What would you prefer? Uh, Bishop Bishop Manchester, um, what, what makes you feel comfortable, I suppose? Well, uh, Bishop, uh, Bishop Manchester, uh, I think is appropriate. Uh, first of all, for those not familiar with the Highgate vampire investigation, uh, tell us first a little bit about the history of, of Highgate Cemetery, because I, I understand this goes back quite a ways to about the 1830s. Yes. Um, the, I mean, the cemetery is not that old by, by some standards. It's, a, it's one of the um, more beautiful relics of um, the Victorian obsession with death. I think there's about seven such cemeteries in and around London. And, of course, when Highgate was um, built in what would have been the grounds of Ashurst House, where now St. Michael's Church stands, um, the, it would have been regarded as quite a way outside London itself. Now it's, it's part of London. Um, it's on probably the highest hill north of the centre of London until you get uh, several hundred miles north. It's a very high point. And the uh, cemetery itself is bisected um, in two by Swain Lane. And uh, the people refer to it as the Eastern Cemetery, the newer by a handful of years, a few years um, of the two, uh, seems to have escaped much of the uh, problems that um, affected the Western Cemetery on the other side of Swain's Lane, um, which is immediately below where St. Michael's Church now, um, again, appropriate that it's St. Michael, the Archangel, the um, patron saint of exorcists. Um, but 1839 is not a very long time ago, and incidents of a paranormal kind were recorded before, indeed, the existence of the graveyard. I, uh, at least I'm uh, going back to um, Victorian times when uh, references to Hobbes ghosts and demons of every hideous description were recorded. I, I believe it goes back further than that. Uh, but certainly um, when Ashurst House, now demolished of course, stood um, at the head of what is now Highgate Cemetery, um, the troubles really probably, as, as we discovered them 40 years ago, began, or 40 or more years ago, I should say, because I had first became acquainted with the unearthly goings-on in the late 60s. <clears throat> Indeed, the, the, the person, persons I spoke to had their um, uh, quite dreadful experiences in early 67. However, um, others, including my colleague, uh, who is the president of the Ghost Club, um, Peter Underwood, author of, uh, oh, I think, over 50 paranormal books here in the UK, he uh, records some um, happenings in the cemetery itself, which are vampiric in kind, uh, around 1965. And then, as one researches, one discovers it goes back and further back and further back. Uh, he, in his um, anthology, The Vampire's Bedside Companion, I think long out of print now, but I, I had a chapter in it, as did my late colleague, um, Professor Devondra Prasadvarma. Um, uh, he, he recorded a trail, a blood spot trail, which 
coincidentally ended where we eventually located what we believed and what indeed turned out to be the undead tomb at the pulsating heart of the Western Cemetery in what is um, called the Circle of Lebanon, the Lebanon Circle, which is a semi-sunken circle of um, uh, vaults, catacombs, uh, no, vaults, mausoleum. Uh, there are catacombs are actually higher up than that that are um, enclosed. But uh, this is a semicircle where there's an inner and outer circle of vaults uh, and mausoleums. And then there is a passage leading away from them into the cemetery itself. I, I definitely... Uh, Egyptian I de style, that is, with, um, again, flanked by vaults either side. And it is in that, in that circle of uh, the Lebanon circle, moreover, uh, that the um, suspected tomb was located in the summer of 1970, and a spoken exorcism was carried out uh, by myself and four others, um, which, as it turned out, proved ineffective. It was a, it was a, a Latin rite exorcism with uh, holy water, incense, um, crucifixes, but it it certainly didn't um, prevent the uh, pollutions of the demonic entity enclosed therein. Even after the, uh, it was then a private cemetery company, it ceased to be in uh, circa 74, I think, when a trust took it over. But, um, 74, 75, Friends of Highgate Cemetery. But back then it was owned by the London Cemetery Company, which who was a, uh, a private company. And uh, they, they even um, arranged to have that particular vault uh, bricked up and cemented um, uh, after the uh, exorcism took place, uh, which again proved ineffective, uh, as it turned out. Let me uh, let me uh, um, let me ask you immediately, um... which might be part of the problem. And um, if you were to go there today, it, I don't believe it's any longer bricked up. But then, Highgate Cemetery itself is no longer. Um, in, infected by any uh, sort of um, or manner or, of demonic infestation. You, you mentioned uh, uh, that... People still find it a very, very creepy place, but that's more to do with its um, reputation combined with its appearance, which is um, very neo-Gothic, uh, Victorian, late Victorian, and, and a mixture of other styles, Etruscan, classical, um, romantic... Uh, even Egyptian styles, uh, massive mausolea. Um, so, and, and, and being on a hillside, a sloping hill of um, City of Dead, um, with these narrow uh, and overgrown paths um, that all seem to lead to the one place, the, the, the heart, the circle of Lebanon. And so people still feel it's a very, very uh, creepy place. And there might even, even be a, a, a scent of the uh, what was once there, a sort of uh, uh, overwhelming aura of um, supernatural evil, but but the actual entity, the evil itself, has, has long gone, um, and there is certainly nothing that I I detect uh, sinister at Highgate anymore. 
whatever else there might be, there is certainly not a vampire contagion. There hasn't been for a great many years. Can you take me back to the, the, re- the early reports in the 1960s? I, believe, I think I read one account online, uh, 1963, two convent girls. Uh, that was early 1967. Ah, 67. And they, 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 two two um, students at La Sainte Union Convent Highgate who were traveling home quite late for schoolgirls, really, or students, um, at night after being with friends down Swains Lane. And as they passed the north gate, not the main gate, the higher one, the north gate, where you could peer in through the railings um, uh, and quite easily see the, if it was daylight at least, the cemetery. But this wasn't daylight, this was nighttime. And um, they both saw what they later described to each other at the bottom of the lane, because they with their hair raised on the back of their necks and the colour drained from their faces um, to the bottom of the lane, where they both described this scene of what appeared to be a, a bodies or a body leaving its its tomb in, in, the, in, the, in the moonlight. Um, uh, one girl was so terrified she didn't ever want to talk about it again, uh, Barbara. But Elizabeth, the Polish student, um, or Polish Catholic, um, she uh, she certainly did uh, talk about it when she started having nightly visitations a couple of years later, um, where she had terrible nightmares and the sense that she was being visited by something, and it all connected to um, this attachment uh, that had been created with Highgate Cemetery and this, um, I suppose. Uh, paranormal um, association Um, and one thing led to another whereby she became perniciously anemic to the point where it was necessary to uh, help her um, recover from what was in fact uh, visitations of a demonic kind at night Um, I mean she grew perilously thin uh, and started to her appetite her dietary needs um started to i mean she was vegetarian and she started to turn to sort of raw meat and blood um which in itself was significant but um it was a bit of a struggle but by the end by christmas the end of that decade um she was none the worse for her um nightmares and um what she and the rest of us believe were visitations of a demonic kind. Uh, Sit tight, uh, Bishop Manchester. We'll be uh, back on the other side. More of my discussion about vampire hunters here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome back. Bishop Sean Manchester, live on the air from Dorset in the south of England discussing the Highgate Cemetery vampire. Now, when we talk about a vampire, uh, of course, our notions of of vampires are wrapped up almost entirely in the Hollywood depictions, Bram Stoker's uh, Dracula. Uh, But when you're you're talking about this demonic entity, as you refer to it, 
Uh, and I mean, it, it didn't sound like you were describing a typical vampire attack on this young woman, Barbara. Uh, she was anemic, but uh, you, you didn't no, mention Elizabeth. Barbara, Barbara was the other student ah. who, um, uh, well, frankly, just didn't want to talk about it anymore. And as far as I'm aware, according to her friend, didn't have any nightmares. Well, well, well certainly didn't have any visitations. Okay. If she if she had nightmares, uh, no, it was Elizabeth. Right. So, Elizabeth, uh, you didn't describe, for example, uh, puncture wounds on her neck. Yes. Uh, oh, there were. Yes, she exhibited that. Now, some people um, have sort of spoken of that as being possibly a psychosomatic stigmata, that associating it with, because by this point, by the by 69, I was openly discussing the vampire theory um, with her, her friend uh, and, and other people. Um, because everything seemed to be pointed in that direction. And and some have taken a more scientific, psychological um, take on the matter. Um, so it, 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 I, I don't agree, because at that time, uh, or shortly after that time, actually, um, animals were being discovered, drained of blood. The RSPCA were having difficulty finding any blood left in these animals for forensic analysis. The one thing that was discovered on the animals, uh, m- many of them nocturnal, like foxes in Waterloo Park, foxes in Highgate Cemetery, was that there were perforations that, uh, are, are, that might account for how the blood was drained from them. And um, that was worrying. And then there was this man who had been uh, in... Um, let me get this right. I think it was Arch- Archway Hospital. It was in in in, um, in a hospital nearby. Was found wandering Highgate Cemetery with a throat wound, um, from which he did not recover. Um, all sorts of speculation as to how that happened and what happened, but um, even the police admitted at the time that it was being hushed up. And then the the cover story was he he committed suicide, but. It, the wounds themselves made that very, very difficult to believe. But there was one thing after another, and in all combined together, made the puncture marks um, on uh, Elizabeth's neck more likely, in my view, to have been affected by a visiting um, materialization, uh, which requires, um, as you almost certainly know already, the smallest drop of blood is required for a, a demon to manifest or materialize uh, it only takes a small drop but it does require that um, the blood is the life and uh, that is the base on which the um, entity um, the, the, uh, can manifest materialize and uh, I suppose that's what separates the vampiric uh, variant from most other demons and that is that uh, it does have this corporeal um, aspect, um, whereas most demons, although they uh, can appear as anything, they can they can they can appear to be a, a beautiful young lady. They could appear to be a grotesque, um, horrible um, spectre. They can be absolutely anything they want to be, but it's an appearance. It's unlikely you you would be able to touch what you, what that uh, uh, illusion is. Um, it's a, it's a demonic interference which is causing the perception to see something that isn't real uh, materially. That 
changes slightly with the um, the predatory race, which have been referred to in the last few centuries as vampires. Um, they are thought to issue forth at night. Uh, like many demons attack people um, during the dark hours, but more particularly people sleeping quietly in their beds from whence the, the blood appears to be taken. And according to folklore, until they're eventually destroyed and themselves might become similarly infected. Although at that point, one it's a mute point because I know Stoker took a lot of the folklore which he which he was well read on, um, uh, and he did he did get some things right in his um, uh, gothic novel, but uh, he took it that little bit further. And my own uh, experience is that the majority of people attacked and bitten by vampires do not themselves become vampires. Um, the cause of vampirism is something else entirely, and and the and and the entity is is quintessentially non-human anyway. So it's a demon. Well, who was this um, vampire, uh, Bishop Manchester, and why Highgate Cemetery? Well, um, it, it is rather a long story, but uh, the infestation existed before the cemetery was built, and translated from uh, the area Ashurst House in particular. Um, to, well, when when we became aware of what was going on, the vampire panics really broke out a little over 40 years ago, to be exact, where it was the talk in every pub, in, 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 in lots of circles and people's, I suppose, dinner parties in the immediate area. It, it, um, it really... Uh, really it was what people were seeing as they passed by the north gate in particular but not just there uh what they were witnessing what they were what what they were discovering Uh, their pet dog for example being found drained of blood very nearby there were some people whose gardens actually backed onto parts of the cemetery and uh, they were having extraordinary um, things happen and there was a there was this vortex of concern which led which broke suddenly at the end of the decade um at the turn of the 70s into panics and pandemonium where which, which itself um, manifested into a, a one of the largest mass public vampire hunts recorded in modern history which was on the night of um, the 13th of march 1970 where literally hundreds of people um, after dark, long after dark, in fact, uh, turned up to try and find this hideous demon and um, and rid themselves of it forever. They were not successful, obviously, but um, it was quite uh, incredible to see these scenes acted out, uh, recorded on the front page of the next day's newspapers. I mean, the evening news uh, had a, a four-page picture of people clambering over the walls and gate carrying homemade steaks and interviewing a number of these people um on the front page of um, the biggest uh, evening newspaper based in london uh, at the time probably still is um so it was quite amazing and those panics uh, arose because of the stories coupled with the discoveries and 
the experiences of people walking near the cemetery. There, I recall in my own book, The Highgate Vampire, um, a young man and his fiance. I, I remember them well, um, Thomas and Stella, <clears throat> who walking down the gate, they, they caught a glimpse of this uh, spectre, this vampiric spectre behind the iron railings of the north gate and were frozen to the spot. Um, and they, they had the, the, the experience that so many others had had. And it, and it led to, on that night at least in March, the police turning a blind eye and, it, and in many ways assisting the vampire hunt by throwing huge beams of um, a searchlight across the cemetery as people clambered all over the place, uh, trying to find what they could not find in that manner anyway. But um, it was like uh, the end of um, one of those old films uh, um, uh, where uh, the, the, the crowd are seeking out the monster and setting fire to the castle or whatever. And, and uh... so it, it, it had, the fear locally in Highgate and its environs was very real. Hard to imagine now, I know. But uh, nonetheless, those old enough who can remember back then will uh, instantly recall just how real the uh, the dread of what, what was going on. I mean, people's pets were being drained of blood, but also somebody discovered drained of, uh, drained of blood in the cemetery, and then two schoolgirls uh, in the summer of that year walking along a lonely path and finding um, a hideous corpse uh, in front of them. Now, this is the other part of the conundrum. It is believed, and the police certainly believe, that the corpse was used in some sort of necromantic ritual by what can only be described as diabolists or Satanists. Um, but the, the whole thing ties, ties up together because um, very often the black arts are found to be involved. Um, I mean, the vampire itself is, is real. It's not a figment of one's imagination. Um, but the vampire cult is inextricably linked with the black arts, as is Satan's diabolical parody of the resurrection. In other words, uh, are you suggesting, Bishop Manchester, that uh, uh, some uh, Satanists uh, actually conjured up this uh, this uh, vampire through the black arts in, in order... That, that has been suggested, though, uh, to be fair, um, records of this, the, the pollutions went back quite a long way. But what I have found that sometimes it, these things lie dormant, not exorcised, not cast out, but dormant, waiting to be almost released again or unleashed. And what is very possible is that, I mean, Satanists visiting various cemeteries, not least of all Highgate, during the 60s, um, was a reality which most people who remember those times will know about. Um, often getting into the uh, the media, um, Highgate was never put really under the microscope until the end of the 60s, <clears throat> when um, because many many cemeteries had been afflicted with uh, diab diabolists using them. Um, but by the end of the 60s, it became apparent that Highgate Cemetery itself was 
being used for clandestine purposes by um, a very serious uh, group of Satanists who might very well, at some much earlier point, have um, summoned up uh, something which was already there, dormant, waiting for whatever it is it takes, um, blood perhaps, um, to be released. It's very easy to open the door to the to the nether region, to the demonic realm. Less easy is it to close it again or cast back those things that have come through. And the thing was already through, but for reasons which we don't fully necessarily understand, were still quite dormant and um, didn't appear to be doing very much up until the mid-60s. It's from the mid-60s that we start getting reports of trails of blood and, and what have you connected with the tombs themselves at the center, the, the, the Lebanon Circle, now, you... recorded by my colleague and others. Um, I came onto the scene a couple of years or so later with um, the, 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 the El of Odiwa experience and witness and, um, and became intrigued and was uh, plunged into the deep end, as it were, once she started having visitations. And then others, uh, once it hit the fan and uh, the press and the media got hold of it, television, Reuters were reporting it, um, it became an almost global uh, story by the um, spring of 1970. By then, people, because my name was so prominent in, in, in the uh, reports, certainly the television um, coverage by the BBC and uh, Thames Television, that people automatically sought to contact me with any information they had, or uncertainly their experiences. And this is what uh, really caused the whole thing to escalate. So how did you get involved? Was it people contacting me that I discovered more and more and more that was going on? Was it Elizabeth or her family that contacted you directly to get you involved? I beg your pardon? Uh, how were you uh, contacted initially for the investigation? Was it Elizabeth or her, or her family? No, um, it, it, it was Elizabeth herself, who, who's a friend of hers, I knew, uh, but not her. But I, in fact, didn't know Barbara either. And I was told by a friend of this experience, and I asked whether it was possible to talk to them, having an interest in, in this uh, area. Um, by which time um, I became uh, aware that uh, others were having experiences not so very dissimilar. But it was two years later when I had a completely um, uh, accidental contact with her in the street, and we went and had um, uh, a cup of coffee or tea or something uh, in, in, in somewhere when she mentioned these uh, nightmares and this face that appeared at the window and that really uh, did start to involve me because it was apparent just looking at her that her appearance had changed radically and um, then I met her boyfriend after that uh, who was no less concerned than I and uh, and between us we managed to pull her back from the brink and that story, of course, I recount in 
some detail in my um, my published work. More of my discussion with Bishop Sean Manchester about the Highgate Vampire Investigation. Stay with us. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Bishop Sean Manchester, live on the air from Dorset in the south of England, discussing the Highgate Cemetery vampire investigation. How did you piece all this together in terms of uh, linking these attacks to one specific uh, gravesite or, or corpse? Well, they, they all seem to center around Highgate Cemetery, more particularly the Western Cemetery. I mean, the, although there were carcasses found in Waterloo Park, and I don't remember any being in, any in the Eastern. There might have been. I don't remember any found in the Eastern, but certainly in the Western Cemetery, animal carcasses, were in, in, in that case, there would be foxes. And, and neighboring, um, the, the neighboring houses are very close, uh, some gardens actually back onto the parts of the cemetery, and they were suffering. Um, and, and, and the further away you, you 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 moved from the 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 evil heart, as it were, the the less uh, there, there were people who mentioned they were having um, there's a young girl in North Road, which is not too far away, who who said that she'd had this terrible experience of something gripping her her arm and her and her hand to the point where she felt she said it tore her hand at night she was having a nightmare which she believed to be a nightmare nothing more she had visited she, her and her brother i think he was slightly younger um it, they did like visiting the cemetery they found it a creepy place and by day of course when it was open officially and and she had this um this uh, experience where something gripped her at night now, she wasn't too far away. She wasn't um, on the immediate doorstep, but she was a, how far away would you say, 10 minutes walk from the cemetery. And, um, and she said it tore into her skin. And, and that's what differentiates it from other hauntings, because um, things that go bumpy tonight don't normally physically attack you, although some people say they have been. But it's, it, it, it starts to narrow down the culprits. And uh, supernatural evil falls into various categories, and this is one of the more extreme categories, the more, one of the more dangerous types that can materialize. And uh, it has to, to be able to tear your skin, to be able to puncture it, to be able to attack you in that way. Um, I mean, there are people who've, uh, I suppose, documented um, vampirism down the centuries, and they, it falls into two camps. I actually uh, subscribe to both. Some say that the whole thing is, um, is, is a demon masquerading, appearing to be the, uh, the dead body of, of somebody. But in actual fact, it, 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 it's a delusion. That's very possible. But that, that is a, a different case, a different um, variant. The, the true vampire, the traditional vampire of folklore, is, is a corporeal... Uh, shell a reanimated corpse with apparent supernatural qualities um it, it comes into existence when a demonic entity manifests as a dead person so this but, is a rean but, but the the agent the supernatural agent is the demon is is is, is the is the demonic 
presence, once that is uh, exercised, cast out, then everything returns to its natural condition, anything that's left, whether it's a place, uh, a person, uh, uh, whatever it is, refers back to its natural state. But whilst the supernatural evil is invested, that everything is possible, anything is possible. They have the ability of metamorphosis, and they can do most things. They are not, however, invulnerable. Um, They can be uh, cast out, and they fear and shrink from holy things and Christian images, the sign of the cross, the crucifix, relics, and above all the host, the body of God. Holy water is hated by them. They are also conquered by the fragrance of incense. Certain trees and herbs apparently keep them away, particularly garlic and whitethorn and um, blackthorn, I think, hawthorn. Um, things that have a holy uh, connection or association. Um, how were you all able? These things uh, seem to work. How were you able to identify the actual culprit, the the reanimated corpse? When you say identified, do you mean, do you mean by name or? Um, it, it was somebody whose sister contacted me. Um, after the, all the massive national publicity, actually international publicity, um, the television press coverage, and the sister, Anna, um, of uh, somebody who was clearly also suffering vampire pollutions, nightly visitations and nightmares, she contacted me, and that person eventually led us through her um, in, in a sort of somnambulistic trance state, led us to the very door, eventually. Um, there, are, there, 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 is, there are things that happened in between, because the, the, there was, a, there was a, a relocation for the cocoons, uh, we believe, to the afflicted tomb, where the names on the inscription, on the... the, the suspected tomb had the inscriptions of those contained within on either side of the iron door which was not locked and there was on inspection there was one coffin too many and that was the one at the very back much larger than the rest and in a fairly a a completely different condition now that coffin had been relocated probably by very human uh, hands from the catacombs nearby, and it, we were led to the to the both places by this person whom I give the name Lucia, um, uh, and whose identity is protected. And she, uh, in in what can only be described as a trance state, led us to the very spot it proved the um, un- undead contagion was centered. And that was the primary source of all that was happening in the area of Highgate Cemetery and its environs. Um, there was only that source. Uh, we, I, we found no other, though contamination beyond that primary source undoubtedly did occur. Um, and and then the, the whole process is repeated again, and and the necessary and vital exorcisms have to take place to rid uh, a region, an area of that particular hideous pest. So there was more than one vampire. 
uh, in in that case, there was yes, but there was a primary source. Ah. And uh, uh, at the outer environment, you couldn't even say that beyond uh, quite a in, a. in another cemetery was found a second contagion. How far away would that be from Highgate? Well, on the other side of the hill, away from London. Um, it's difficult to say. Uh, not too far. Um, certainly, uh, if you're driving uh, no more than um quarter an hour, 20 minutes. Uh and in a quite large cemetery, it, which proved very problematic because part of the woodland cemetery, well, the woodland part, in fact, the 11 acres of woodland was bought by developers on which uh, they planned to develop houses um, for the more affluent. And the rest of the cemetery was left. And it, that was disturbing in itself. And I campaigned against that. And the original company of developers actually um, had had enough of me uh, because I, I took my campaign to the media. I also stood as a local councillor uh, to have the um, uh, permissions re uh, retracted. But another developer took over the plans and slightly modified them but it was still the sacrilege of digging up graves, smashing the tombstones and putting them on the back of a skip, and cremating the uh, bodies, and um, uh, just simply scattering the ashes or burying them with trees in a, in a remembrance garden in the middle. The remembrance garden's in the middle of the housing uh, uh, development, which went ahead. and understandably, people didn't seem to live in those houses very long before they were putting them back on the market. But that was a, that was a secondary uh, contagion, which was um, actually every bit as terrifying as the first, from my perspective. Maybe not other people who'd, who'd suffered uh, at Highgate the most awful nightmare experiences. But um, from my own perspective, that... that Due, due to the strength of the demonic uh, materialization, which I dealt with fairly, pretty much on my own in, at the end, whereas the, at Highgate I had um, a team of assistants, which um, were, were not always the same people, incidentally, but um, a, a, a fairly tight team of people who, who both understood, research, studied, and knew the phenomenon. And um, uh, somehow... Um, uh, gave strength to the fight, the struggle against um, these denizens of the uh, of the um, nether region. Now, uh, whereas the situation um, at the in the early at the beginning of the eighties uh, was quite different, and I was facing it on my own, and it was it was truly terrifying. And it's not something you ever want to go through again. But that whole case, um, which as a full-time investigation lasted no less than 13 years, you could say from 1969 to 1982. And in the 80s, that, we, in the 80s, I mean, w w this uh, uh, 
uh, demonic activity that was related to perhaps the uh, destruction of these uh, graves and the and the rather unceremonious uh, disposal. Well, of... no, the developers were responsible. Right, were responsible no, for that. Understood. Uh, understood. Making for financial gain. Understood, but but uh, it didn't help matters because the the, the disturbances. Um, uh, just made made the investigation very much more difficult because it was on the periphery of where um, the contagion itself was. But in the eighties, and they were placing prey right in the, right on the doorstep of what is a predatory wraith uh, by building um, uh, a small, very small housing estate on eleven acres of woodland, which woodland that contained graves, um, which was by no means. The majority of the grave. There was still a lot of graveyard beyond beyond that eleven acres. So there was a vampiric activity they were, they were in the eighties. Placing people right on the doorstep of a predatory demonic entity, which would only be too glad to quaff their warm blood. So there was vamp- vampiric activity yes. in the eighties. Yes, at, at the Great Northern London Cemetery. Yes. Don't go away. More on vampire hunting when the conspiracy show continues in just a moment. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. If you believe in God and angels and fallen angels, ergo you must believe in the possibility, at least, of the existence of vampires. That according to my guest, Bishop Sean Manchester. Uh, Bishop Manchester, uh, people listening to this uh, will say... The existence of vampires just seems so fantastical. Now, you're a man of the cloth. Uh, prior, yes. to, prior to this investigation, uh, if someone had mentioned vampires to you, what would you have said to them? Well, I, I was researching vampires from quite an early age. I mean, I would have been a student age. Um, I can't be precise, but certainly in my teens, um, I was reading the books of Montague Summers, himself a man of the cloth. Um, the, uh, particularly the Vampire His Kith and Kin, published in um, was that 1928, and the Vampire in Europe, um, 1929, I think. Um, two excellent uh, books. Some pe- people today find them difficult to read because they're so detailed and they go they go into so much detail. But um, Montague Summers undoubtedly believed in vampires. I think he even claimed to have um, dealt with them. He knew my colleague, um, Peter Underwood, who's that bit older than me, well, quite a lot older than me. He's in his 80s now. And he actually knew Montague Summers and was given a, a vampire protection medallion uh, by uh, Summers. Um, uh, whether it worked or not, I don't know. I wouldn't like to rely upon it. But um, most of the people who've chronicled cases of vampirism, the law and, and the uh, incidents, have themselves been clergy. Um, most of the people who've called for reports into vampirism have been bishops, archbishops, even the Pope on occasions in medieval times and the past uh, centuries has called upon um, uh, his priests uh, who specialize in the area of uh, demonolatry to um, investigate. Uh, one of the most famous being um, Dom Augustine Calmlet. But, but, I mean, there are many others. I mean, at the end of it, Comet was not decided one way or the other. Um, but uh, others were fairly convinced that um, the, 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 there are vampires. 
um, I myself, I mean, no doubt, of course, but I'm not the least bit surprised because um, if we're to believe in, 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 the, in the supernatural at all, and we're obliged to do that by virtue of the fact that we believe in God, the devil, angels and demons, which are fallen angels, and all the rest, uh, possession, evil spirits, um, why, I mean, the, the devil and his wiles knows no borders or parameters and uh, this filthy, awful, dreadful parody of the resurrection, and the parody of the hideous, hideous parody of the afterlife, uh, life to come, by uh, what is, after all, uh, demons, uh, head demon of which is the devil, um, uh, is hardly surprising to me. It's more surprising to come across it, perhaps, uh, but then... Um, people don't go looking for it and might misinterpret it in any case. I mean, I have people describing what I would consider to be demons, but they consider to be extraterrestrials because that because of the culture, uh, the modern culture, to attribute things differently. Right, and right. they describe this, this, this creature, which to me sounds like a demonic creature, uh, that could be found in a medieval painting almost. But they, they're, they're quite convinced it's 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 nothing supernatural it's an extraterrestrial that's come to um uh, uh try and um take them away in the in the uh, 1980s in the 1980s uh i think it was culminated in 1981 were you having physical encounters with vampires or again were you essentially true yes you would i mean i I, I have investigated many cases since then, so, some not so compelling, I have to admit, by a long chalk, and none as terrifying by any any measure of means. But um, uh, the, the, the Highgate case was a learning curve. I mean, I was relatively young myself, in my 20s, and um, what I discovered was, I mean, I had no choice. Uh, the me, because of the pandemonium and, and so many people having gone to the media, particularly their local newspaper, with their experience, it was out of my hands. Um, the media already had the story. Uh, but I was very careful when I investigated other cases or suspected cases, not always in cemeteries, but Abney Park Cemetery was one I investigated. Uh, when was that? And the 90s. Um, and sometimes it's not uh, places of burial at all. But um, I'm very careful to not involve the media, unless it's already involved, as it was in the case of Kirklees, which I'm still not convinced is a vampire case. It's a mystery, I do admit, in West Yorkshire. But, um, and it's a haunting, probably. But um, although there were discovered at the beginning of the Kirklees uh, mystery, uh, sometimes called it by the press the Kirklees vampire, um, uh, there were certain certain aspects to it which had a vampiric quality. I'm less than convinced now more than ever that it that it is vampiric. I believe there's supernatural evil probably at large. Have you been physically um, attacked by a vampire? So many people have seen this dreadful spectre of what can only be described as a, a hag with burning red eyes that terrifies the life out of them. And so many people have independently suffered that in that... Um, remote wooded place on private land incidentally walking their dogs and things um, that are, there's undoubted and it goes back to uh, chronicles that were written in previous centuries record um, similar uh, incidents of uh, a, a supernatural presence so there's something going on but I'm no longer prepared to 
um, allocate it to the vampire category uh, or, or travel the route where I would investigate it in that way. Having exhausted that, I've, I, I, I've been along, investigated, and I've exhausted the possibility of it being a vampire. It's, it's something else. Have you been attacked? And this often happens. Have you ever been physically attacked by a vampire? Yes, uh, at the very end of the case of the Highgate vampire, uh, in in the uh, turn at the um, uh, oh, eighty one, eighty two, which would it have been? I think it might have been eighty two. Uh, yes, I was. Uh, my uh, I'm trying to. I'm looking at my hand now. I my palm, well, where the palm meets the wrist, almost just, but on the hand, not on the wrist. There is a tear. Uh, you there are mm, one, two. There are tears. Which the scars of which I still bear, and that and how I, how that were, those wounds were afflicted is given in graphic detail in my book, The Highgate Vampire, and um, that that was quite terrifying. Uh, f- are we and talking? Again, f- that is where the demon manifested as something benign, only to only to in, in, at night, of course, only to turn. Uh, once it had crossed, crossed the threshold, um, I, it, I, it puts a shudder through me just uh, remembering those times, those incidents and experiences. Um, it's, um, the memory to forget is stronger than the, the, the desire to remember. The, 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 the desire to forget is, is, is much more powerful, but it's near impossible when people keep wanting you to talk about these things. And I do understand the fascination, particularly as we've moved into a a world, the Western world certainly, less willing to believe in almost anything supernatural. But certainly these sorts of things, the, the, the demonic realm, the supernatural evil, which involves certainly predatory entities that must be described as vampires because their activity and their behavior is vampiric. Are they, are they yes, farm- they drain the energy, so they, they drain, can drain the blood, and they can manifest, and they can materialize. To, if, if, to me, that's a vampire. How, how common are they? Are they far more common than we would even... Uh, that, that, that is impossible to say. That's like saying how common are demons. They're legion. But the, I must be fair to say that the, the, this variant is not as common as you as you might suspect. Um, why that is, I I don't know. Um, but I believe that um, demonry itself is on the increase. I believe that demonic, uh, as do others in my position. Um, uh, I think uh, the previous pope warned in one of the Catholic newspapers that. Um, Diabolism and demonry and uh, the need for uh, exorcism has never been greater and is on the increase. Um, so I believe that demonic attacks, possession and interference is increasing, not decreasing. And I believe the world is getting a more, getting to be a more evil, a more dangerous place. Um, whether vampires as such are more prevalent than ever they were before. I could not possibly say, because they are recorded throughout history. They are recorded in every civilization, going back to antiquity, in the beginning of early civilizations in different parts of the world where those countries 
those areas hadn't even contacted each other, yet they recorded what I would recognize to be vampiric behavior of a supernatural kind. So the problem has always been with us. The scale of the problem is, is more difficult to uh, discern. I only know that I have come across it. Some others have come across it. Um, uh, but I think, as is the case with other things of a supernatural kind, people are very cautious uh, discussing it openly and certainly publishing it, as I'm doing right this moment now, on, on, on the air. Because the moment you do that, as I have known to my cost, your life can, no, can never again be normal. Can, you can never have a quiet life ever again, unless you find a, an island somewhere where, change your name, um, uh, and totally uh, give up your ties to everything you knew before. Um, and most people are aware of that, that you will be held up as ridiculed, held up as a laughing stock, and you run the risks of, um, uh, I suppose, isolating yourself and, and losing the chance of advancement in a materialistic uh, society, uh, because they do not want people who believe in such things holding positions of responsibility. Final uh, final uh, question, uh, Doctor or, uh, Bishop Manchester. Are there... Uh, others um, within Christian orders uh, uh, being made aware of this, being trained on how to investigate and handle vampires, because you're not you're not going well, to be aware certainly because I have them contact me. I'm trained. I'm not so sure in the Western right. Um, I don't think there's that many being trained uh, that I'm aware of in the Anglican, uh, Roman and other Catholic uh, jurisdictions. In the Eastern churches, I don't know. I know that they're very, in all the years uh, I have discussed these things amongst uh, ecclesial and clerical people, the Eastern Orthodox uh, of any persuasion, Greek, Russian, are very much more open Bishop Manchester, I really thank you for your uh, your time tonight. This has uh, been not only fascinating, but, uh, well, downright uh, <laughs> disturbing. Uh, and I wish you uh, uh, good luck, and I, I, I hope that you'll uh, remain safe. Thank you very much. Uh, you're most welcome. It's been wonderful to talk to you again. I remember our last encounter and enjoyed it immensely. And uh, I offer you my blessings and peace be with you. Thank you very much. Time to dim the lights and make a mad dash to the car. My thanks to Dan Ellison. Good luck to you, Dan, getting home after that uh, conversation with vampire slayer Sean Manchester. Have a good sleep if you can. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark speak in the light, and what I say in a whisper... Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.